0: Our gospel reading today comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. May God bless our understanding of this sacred text. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, here we are, nestled in our warm and cozy sanctuary, turning our attention to a rather fiery reading from the Gospel of Luke. Because this is the text, This is the gospel reading recommended by the lectionary. Congregations as near as All Saints Episcopal Church down the street and as far away as Mozambique across the world are all turning their attention to the same text this morning. I can't help but wonder how very different it reads in different contexts. What is it like to hear, blessed are you who are poor, in a congregation populated by people who live on less than a dollar a day? What is it like to hear, blessed are you who are hungry in a region wrecked by famine? What is it like to hear, blessed are you who weep, in a community devastated by gun violence? A sentence I wrote before Aurora down the road became yet another such community. What is it like to hear, blessed are you, when people hate you, in one of the many places around the world where Christians are persecuted minorities? These are hard questions. I'm not poor. I am not hungry. Well, I might be a little hungry, but not, like, hungry. I know what it is to weep, of course, though not as inconsolably as some. The only time I've ever experienced anything that might qualify as mild persecution is from internet trolls who can get remarkably nasty in their attacks on women serving as pastors. But it's not like strangers on the internet casting aspersions on my calling has any measurable effect on my quality of life. I once watched a video of Chinese Christians receiving a suitcase filled with Bibles. They gathered around like kindergartners flocking to the foot of a pinata clasping the books to their hearts and crying tears of gratitude. I wonder how they read this text. So what is it like to read, Woe to you who are rich, in a village where the average home price hovers well over half a million dollars? What is it like to hear, Woe to you who are full now, Knowing full well your refrigerator is well-stocked with goodies from Trader Joe's. What is it like to hear woe to you who are laughing in a world in which the average Netflix subscriber streams more than an hour of entertainment each day, but the average family spends between 34 to 37 minutes of quality, undistracted time together. What is it like to hear woe to you when all speak well of you in a culture in which respectability is tantamount? I don't know about you, but the Beatitudes as they are presented to us in the Gospel of Luke make me a little uncomfortable. You see, Matthew's version is more well-known and more embraceable. He spiritualizes them in ways that calm the nerves of affluent Christians. In Matthew's version, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the poor, but rather, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the hungry, but rather, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's easier to imagine ourselves as the blessed ones, especially since in Matthew's version, Jesus doesn't follow the blessings with a series of corresponding woes. My heavens, they are hard to swallow. It doesn't really surprise me that in nearly 14 years of ministry, I have never actually preached on this text. I have been averting my eyes and looking the other way. It has been said that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I suspect that whoever said that might have been thinking about the Beatitudes. At some point, we must reckon with an awkward truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not always sound like good news to people of privilege. I had a particularly poignant wrestling match with this awkward truth nine years ago when I was discerning if I was truly called to leave my church in California to come and serve as an associate pastor here at First Congregational Church of Western Springs. I had always assumed that my work as a pastor would unfold in hard places. My first job was as a counselor at a camp for children who lived in urban inner city Toledo. I chose my seminary largely because I thought it had the best urban ministry program in the country. And I thought I would serve in the trenches, fighting for socioeconomic injustice and tending to the least of these. During my interview weekend here, I found myself torn. I longed to come and live and work in this lovely place, and yet the loveliness of this place confounded my sense of calling. I brought my misgivings to one of my mentors. His response was startling and perhaps even offensive. And I share it with you now with some fear and trembling. He said, the thing I have discovered is that the spiritual poverty in affluent areas seems to increase in proportion to a person's income. There are always exceptions, of course, but it really is pretty amazing. He said, the degree to which people fear losing something they count on so much is stunning. These are harsh words. I found myself simultaneously recognizing that they echoed the harsh words of Jesus and feeling incredibly protective of the people they condemned. It was, ironically, that impulse to defend that made me realize I might actually be called to serve here. Now, I do not believe in a blanket statement that equates financial wealth with spiritual bankruptcy, as if the square footage and bathrooms-to-people ratio of your household determines the well-being of your soul there are kind generous and faithful folks at every income tax bracket yet i know firsthand the fear my mentor mentioned despite my best intentions i clutch at my material wealth with the white knuckles of someone who doesn't ultimately trust the upside down vision of the gospel Jesus can wax poetic about the kingdom of God belonging to the poor all he wants. There's something in me that doesn't totally buy it. I'm too distracted by the consolation that is mine now. Too comfortable within a socioeconomic system that works to my benefit. I've been thinking a lot about another passage from Luke's Gospel about Jesus's encounter with the rich young ruler. The man came asking Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus reminds him of all the commandments, but the man is confident that he has a perfect track record. So Jesus pushes him further. There is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. But when the rich man heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When I hear this, I become sad too. Perhaps you do as well, but I can only speak for myself. I'm not sure I'm ready for such a radical reorientation of my life. I love Jesus, and I want to follow him, but the contours of my life do not lend themselves to fitting through the eye of a needle." Last fall, my dear friend Amy Julia Becker came to speak at our church. Amy Julia speaks and writes about privilege, and it is a topic she knows quite well. She is the daughter of wealthy white professionals and was educated at boarding schools and an Ivy League college. She remains immersed in an elite East Coast world to this day, as her husband is the headmaster of a prestigious boarding school in Connecticut. She's one of the smartest people I've ever met and one of the most faithful, too. She recognizes that injustice does not only stifle the lives of those who are disadvantaged, but it can also impoverish the lives of those who are not. She is particularly tuned into the pitfalls of affluence, having navigated many herself. She writes this, privilege allowed me to turn inward. I stayed focused on myself, and I stayed miserable. When I look at the data about depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and isolation among the affluent youth and adults today, it seems I'm not alone. Wealth does bring happiness up to a point. We need basic material security. But people with no worries about their material needs have the luxury of becoming self-centered, which often seems to mean becoming self-destructive. She goes on to say this, All the money in the world couldn't change the anxiety I felt as a teenager trying to achieve my way through school, and all the Chardonnay in the world could not bring me the peace I sought night after night when our kids were younger. But admitting my needs and receiving the mysterious love of God could change me, could change the world. And I suspect this is the crux of it. The Kingdom of God belongs to the poor because they know their need. The Kingdom of God is in danger of slipping out of the hands of the rich because our hands are so full with fleeting consolations, we forget our need. There is more to the story of Jesus and the rich man. The people who overheard this conversation asked a reasonable question. If it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, then who can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. And therein lies our hope, friends. Grace, not cheap grace, not grace that promises everything and demands nothing, grace that transforms us from the inside out, grace that dares us to entrust ourselves to God, grace that sears us even as it saves us. Last fall, I was in the midst of a time of weeping. It had been a difficult year, and I was in danger of being pulled under by grief, anxiety, and depression. I went on a silent retreat out of sheer desperation. Never have I been more acutely aware of my need for God, my need for grace. On the retreat, a kind spiritual director slipped me a Puritan prayer. It was and is my blessing, a blessing as paradoxical as the Beatitudes themselves. It doesn't necessarily sound like good news, but I am more convinced than ever that it is. Maybe this is the prayer that finally gave me the courage to preach the hard and holy wisdom of Jesus's blessings and woes. Let us pray it as though we mean it. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley.